this yes. is hell. Okie doke. Manufacturing dissent since 1996. This is hell considering the past 500 plus years of history and what is now called the Americas, it's pretty hard to argue that the relationship between those of European ancestry and those of African ancestry is reconcilable in any way. As historian Gerald Horn has pointed out on our show in the past, more than a century before what is now known as the 1619 Project, Africans were being enslaved on this continent. Long before there was even the idea of the United States, capitalism was already enslaving Africans, not to mention indigenous peoples as well, believing that the U.S. can be reformed, fixed, changed for the better after centuries of struggle, that equality can be attained. The equality allegedly guaranteed in the founding documents of the United States must be seen by now as futile at best. Every time the people rise up against the strong arm of white supremacy, privilege, and neoliberalism, the police and their wealthy masters crack down harder, becoming even more cruel, brutal, and violent. So what can or should be done in that fight for racial equality and against the racialized violence that targets Africans worldwide? We'll try to figure that out in a few when we speak with civil rights attorney Mark P. Fancher, who wrote the Black Agenda Report article, The USA, Immoral, Illegal, Irredeemable, and Irrelevant to Global Africa's Liberation Struggle. And again, we want to thank the great people at Black Agenda Report who have been supporting This Is Hell since the 20th century. Mark is a longtime contributor to Black Agenda Report, and he is the author of I Ain't Got Tired Yet, The Spiritual Battles of Enslaved African Christians and Their Descendants. I'm your bitter, blind, broke, gap-toothed radio show, live-streaming podcast host, Chuck Mertz. Producing this week's show is, well, if it's Monday, it must be Jess Lipka. Jess, how have you been? How was your weekend? I'm doing great. Yeah, my weekend was good. I spent all weekend taking a motorcycle riding class. Oh, no kidding. Yeah, that was like my whole weekend, basically. What, um, what was the bike you rode? Um, so they've got like, they've got a bunch of 250, it was a Kawasaki. They've got a bunch of like 250 small little bikes. That right. Do, yeah. Um, yeah, it was fun. I learned it, it was a long, long day, especially Saturday. It was really hot. Did you end up laying the bike down at any point? <laughs> no, I didn't. Oh, well, good for it you. Did, That's it, a... didn't, it didn't drop. <laughs> you should look up a, a children's book called Lucky Chuck that somebody gave me. <laughs> and it's about a little kid learning how to ride a motorcycle and learning what the term laying it down means. So look up the book Lucky Chuck, a children's right. book. It's, well great. <laughs> it's a great movie. No, it isn't. Yesterday, uh, the weirdest thing happened to me, Jess, and uh, just so odd. A whole bunch of groceries from a nearby supermarket suddenly and mysteriously appeared on our back porch. <laughs> I have no idea why. Chicken thighs, hamburger, a melon, big sack of potatoes, two boxes of ice cream sandwiches, a couple of frozen pizzas, two cans of great white northern beans, and a couple of green chilies, a bag of apples, bricks of cheese, some flatbread, and a pre-mixed Caesar salad with no receipt or any written record whatsoever, no address to tell us who was supposed to get this food. We have no idea. We live up on the third floor. Somebody came up our back fire escape and dropped this food off. So at around noon, I went out on our back stairs and put some recycling in the bin we have immediately outside our back door. Everything seemed normal. There were no groceries on our back porch at noon yesterday. Just an empty porch, 
with the recycling bin. I left the storm door open, locked the screen door so we could get some fresh air into our place as it was incredibly hot yesterday. About an hour and a half later, going to get something from out of the car, parked out back, and suddenly there were five full bags of groceries sitting at the top of our stairs with some of the food thawing, some melting. So we called the store who told us to call their licensed delivery service. When we talked with them, they said, just keep the groceries. The person who was supposed to get them will complain and we'll simply replace whatever they bought. So we brought all of that food over here to the bar. The bartender was in the middle of actually making plans to go up north this weekend. So we just gave it all to him. But all I could think about last night keeping me up was the fact that somebody yesterday sneaked up our back stairs on a hot day, going up three flights of stairs and then leaving frozen food and fresh meat on our back porch and then sneaking away without telling anyone. It was just the weirdest thing I have come across here in Chicago in a long time. More importantly than any of that, Jess, what is this week's question from hell for our listening audience? This week's question from hell is, what secret society are you trying to join? <laughs> what secret society are you trying to join? The mysterious grocery deliverers of America. That's the group that I'm trying to join. The person with our favorite answer to this week's question from hell wins your choice of whatever This Is Hell merchandise you want. You can check out all of our merchandise right now by going to thisishell.com and clicking on support, where you will see all the ways you can contribute to completely listener-supported This Is Hell. Without you, we got nothing. So thanks to all of you for your support. I mean, they could have knocked on the door. The screen door was open. The uh, storm door was open. They could have yelled through the screen. They could have rang the front doorbell. Instead, they just sneaked up, dropped off groceries, let them melt, sneaked away. Thanks to Patrick M. and Andrew J. who showed their support for This Is Hell by going to thisishell.com and clicking on support this weekend. Thanks, Patrick and Andrew. We truly appreciate your support. You can leave your answer to this week's question mail at our, face- at our Facebook page, facebook.com slash thisishellradio. You can tweet it to us at thisishellradio. You can email it to us at chuck at thisishell.com. But we must have your answer by the end of Thursday's show when we are announcing this week's winner, as we do every week following the moment of truth from Jeff Dorchin. Jess will be sharing some of your answers to this week's question from hell following our guest. Again, the question from hell is, what secret society are you trying to join? What secret society are you trying to join? Brave enough to be streaming live, dumb enough to be goofy, stupid enough to think that we could be a regular part of your weekly hangover. This is hell, and Jess has this week's hangover cure. This week's hangover cure is a failed attempt by a reality TV star you have never heard of who is on a show you have never seen, and we are going to do everything we can to keep it that way. At one of the many British websites that does nothing but regurgitate press releases written by PR agencies hired by rich, sad, privileged people who want to be famous despite having no discernible skills other than to collect inheritances, there's a desperate attempt to get completely undeserved attention from a half-naked wannabe posing in a bubble-filled bathtub pictorial. The soulless vessel, whose only claim to fame is getting drunk while being lavished with luxury, explains their several-step hangover cure, saying... Self-pleasure is one of the steps, trust me. The order to do them in is to rest, have a poo, drink plenty of fluids, and have a smoothie with bananas, shower, and then masturbation. Which makes this week's Hangover Cure pathetic begging for attention and masturbation. I don't know if that one works or not, do you know? I'm too certain about that one. I don't think so. By the way, that was the first Hangover Cure that did come up on DuckDuckGo under news this week, so don't blame me. 
Actually, I'm just going to pretend Jess wrote that so I don't get in any trouble. Putting people before profits, which turns out to be a horrible business model. This is hell. And you can help us with our horrible business... Uh, here, our horrible business model. You can help your friends here at This Is Hell by subscribing to our weekly Friday Patreon podcast at patreon.com slash thisishell. On this past Friday's Patreon podcast, you know by now that the late, great Gil Scott Heron was correct when he famously read the words, the revolution will not be televised. And sure enough, it appears we may be in the midst of a worldwide revolution right now, and it is definitely not being televised. Recently, we have spoken with guests about uprisings against police in Chile, Turkey, Greece, France, Germany, Britain, Canada, Brazil, Colombia, across the United States and elsewhere. A couple weeks ago, we spoke with historian Matt Lasseter about the Detroit Under Fire project that is digging through police records to determine how many people, usually unarmed young black men who were shot in the back, were killed by police following the 1967 uprising in Detroit against police violence. And that's what those protests in 1967 were all about, police violence. That revolution was televised, but it was delegitimized by slapping the word riot over uprising. Throughout U.S. history, uprisings against police have been erased, and it is happening right now again, as by all measure, we are in the middle of a planetary uprising against police violence, violence imposed upon all of us to enforce the globalization of inequality and poverty. Meanwhile, with yet again more violence between Israelis and Palestinians, in a recent column at The Guardian, the co-founder of the Boycott, Divest, and Sanction movement, Omar Barghouti, has yet again asked the world to boycott Israel. So we thought it would be a good time to share our 2012 interview with Omar, who literally wrote the book on BDS titled BDS, The Global Struggle for Palestinian Rights. But you can only hear all about the revolution that is not being televised and the history of the U.S. doing everything it can to wipe every uprising against the U.S. from its past, as well as our interview with the co-founder of BDS by subscribing to This Is Hell on Patreon at patreon.com slash thisishell. Remember, every Friday at 10 a.m. live at patreon.com slash thisishell, we stream our Patreon podcast, and then it is po posted at the short, same place shortly after, where you can hear it at your convenience. So last week, we read an email from Martin who had some questions for us that I then posed to you. He asked, if we get rid of capitalism, wouldn't there still be violent crime? Wouldn't there still be people who are dangerous to society? Well, I did not have an answer for Martin. We asked if you, the listening audience, did, and sure enough, Valerie did. Our listeners are just the best. Valerie writes, hi, Chuck. I hope you've, you're doing as well as you can in this faux post-COVID hellscape. I wanted to respond to a listener question. Martin asked, if we got rid of capitalism, won't there still be violent crime? Answer, yes. Longer answer, yes, unfortunately, prison abolitionists understand that violent crimes would still probably happen even if we overthrow capitalism. While capitalist exploitation and precarity might exacerbate the reasons people commit violent crimes, a different socioeconomic system won't be enough to end rape culture, abuse, homicides, etc. My question to you then is, have violent crimes lessened under capitalism. While the police and prison industrial complex is tied to capitalism and the dog-eat-dog -dog ethos that destroys interdependence and autonomy, other systems, such as state communism, have also used prisons to punish people. Here in the United States, where we have the largest population of incarcerated people on earth, violent crimes still happen daily. 
The prison system does nothing to curb violent tendencies. Instead, incarceration perpetuates cycles of violence. Often, people talk about prisons as being a school to get better at crime, and prison gangs often are able to continue criminal activities on the outside of prison walls. So the systems we have now aren't working. They do nothing to support victims of violent crimes. The only positive thing that occurs is that people in abusive and terrifying situations get a break from being around their abuser. Going through trials and the effort it takes to press charges is a traumatizing process in itself after a traumatizing event. Often people decide that it's just not worth going through at all. Prison abolitionists have a lot of ideas and experiments about how to do things differently. The reality is that no one really knows what a perfect system would be to eventually end violent crimes. But what we are doing isn't working, and it actively harms people and communities. Some people that are amazing, which may have been on your show, who think, talk, and agitate for alternatives to police and prisons are Miriam Kaba. Yes, we've had Miriam on a couple of times. Ruth Wilson Gilmore, nope, not yet, but we would love to have Ruth Wilson Gilmore on the show. Victoria Law, she's been on several times. And Angela Davis, again, nope, but would be honored to have Angela Davis on our show. Valerie continues, Critical Resistance is an organization work, uh, focused on that work. Find them at insight-national.org. Also, I fully agree with you, Chuck, about not worrying about the left right binary. I've always thought it's ridiculous to have only two options where there is so much nuance in the world. Binary thinking only holds us back in getting out of our echo chambers and intellectually engaging with different topics that might not fit neatly into your own beliefs is a healthy and productive way to be. Wish you well. Sincerely, Valerie. I knew our listeners would have a better answer for Martin than I could ever dream up. So Martin, to your questions, if we got rid of capitalism, wouldn't there be still be violent crime? Wouldn't there still be people who are dangerous to society? As Valerie says, the answer is yes and yes, but capitalism is a, itself a major driver of violent crime. If you want to add your two cents to this conversation, or if you have any comments or critiques of the show or guest or topic suggestions, send them to chuck at thisishell.com, direct message them to us via Twitter, at thisishellradio, or send them to us via Facebook's messenger at facebook.com slash thisishellradio. Coming up, the United States cannot reform its way to racial equality. We'll have this week in Rotten History some of your answers to this week's question from hell, which is, what secret society are you trying to join? What secret society are you trying to join? And we'll tell you what's coming up this week here on This Is Hell. Noam Chomsky called This Is Hell Sanity and Talk Radio. So clearly and sadly, Noam's gone insane. This is hell. There are many who hope that the United States can fix its relationship with people of African descent who live here within what is now the United States. With a tweak here and there, they believe the United States can be reformed into that beacon of democracy and equality we all believe we were promised. But considering how those promises are still going unfulfilled despite those same promises being made for the past 245 plus years, one has to wonder if the U.S. of A. can ever really be fixed. Here to help us consider if the U.S. can be reformed, and if not, what is to be done? Civil rights attorney Mark P. Fancher wrote the Black Agenda Report article, The USA, Immoral, Illegal, 
irredeemable and irrelevant to global Africa's liberation struggle. Welcome to This Is Hell, Mark. Oh, well, thank you very much. It's my great pleasure to be here. Mark is a longtime contributor to Black Agenda Report, and he's also the author of I Ain't Got Tired Yet, The Spiritual Battles of Enslaved African Christians and Their Descendants. Your piece starts with the statement the U.S. can never be reformed to render justice to its African residents. Why can't the U.S. change and therefore improve? Why does the word reform fall short in what needs to be done to change the U.S. and improve it? Well, it really speaks to the fact that the U.S. was constructed in a very particular way, and it was not designed from the outset uh, to provide what uh, we would like to think of as liberation or justice for uh, you know, oppressed communities, specifically uh, African communities and indigenous communities. Uh, the analogy that I make is to, uh, you know, if, if I'm in my car and I'm stuck in a traffic jam and I really want my car to fly and take me to my destination, I really want that. I mean, I desperately want that. I passionately want that. I want it so badly that I get out of my car and I put airplane wings on the car and, you know, tell it to fly. But it's not going to fly because it's not made that way. And if we look at the way in which the United States was constructed, the way it was designed, it was not designed uh, to provide the kind of justice that we seek. I mean, at the outset, you know, the great lie about America is that it was, you know, designed as this, this uh, you know, model of democracy and fairness and justice. But the truth is that it was designed as a, 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 an institution, as an entity uh, that would uh, consolidate and affirm the power of a small white male elite uh, that uh, had property and resources. Uh, they did not extend the franchise to women, uh, and they excluded everybody else. Uh, the, the only reference that was made in the, uh, the Constitution to enslaved African people uh, was in Article 1, Section 2, where it said that they could be used as political placeholders by elite white southern planters who, because of the sparse white population in the South, uh, we're, we're looking for a way to ensure uh, fair apportionment uh, in Congress and so that they could use three-fifths of the people that they held as property uh, as political placeholders to give them more representation, you know, further exploitation and use of a population. And indigenous peoples uh, were not part of this idea at all. I mean, in fact, uh, the U.S. went to war against them and, you know, to the extent that there were questions later about whether, uh, you know, African people were part of this, uh, in the Dred Scott opinion, in uh, I believe it was 1857, uh, they said explicitly uh, that, uh, you know, African people, you know, who were enslaved were not in any way considered to be part of the contemplation of those who authored the Declaration of Independence. And in fact, had they been, uh, the world would have been justified in, in looking down on these people, condemning them. Uh, so, you know, because of the way that the U.S. is constructed, you know, structurally and institutionally, uh, all of that damage that was done in the design and the formation of the U.S. cannot be undone. Uh, it, it's just the way that the country is constructed. 
And then when we look at the current state of reform, like you, you had a column back in June of last year in the wake of the police killing of George Floyd titled Global Africa Must Defeat Global, Global Imperialist Policing. In it, you write, after nearly two weeks of rage-filled street manifestations triggered by the cold-blooded racist murder of George Floyd, the demonstrators' demands tend toward the conventional. The usual calls for better training, diversity in police ranks, different policies, uh, stricter discipline, and increased black voter turnout have been spiced up only by new demands of the defunding of police agencies. So, yeah, included in those are this this idea of defunding the police relative to what we refer to as the usual calls of reform. How unusual was and is defunding the police? Does that go beyond what you refer to as the usual calls for police reform? Is this movement in any sense evolving and growing? Well, you know, to some extent it is. And I think that the more people call for reforms and the more that they manage to uh, achieve, uh, the, the, the higher the level of consciousness, you know, people become more aware of the contradictions and ultimately the futility uh, of what we're trying to do here. I mean, you know, I, I made reference to an 1857 Supreme Court decision, but if you look at the way that the U.S. is constructed, you know, everything builds on precedent, you know, in law, uh, so that you don't erase that. You know, you just, you know, you, you comment on it, you talk about it, but it influences and it impacts uh, not only uh, the legal framework that we're, we're dealing with, but the cultural framework as well, because those things send a message uh, to, you know, the people who populate this country. And the message that was sent early on to white workers is that this country was for them, uh, that this country was uh, not intended for, for black people. It was not intended for First Nations people. It was not intended for people who might come here uh, you know, as immigrants. And to the extent that things change for immigrants, you know, it's only after very careful contemplation and a decision that's been made that on some level they are quote-unquote white. Uh, so the idea of a white nation is one that's permanently imprinted. And so even if you defund the police, whatever it is that you do with policing, uh, you still are left with uh, a group of white workers primarily who still see this as a country for white people. And they bring that consciousness into the work that they do. And so you can monitor them, you can train them, you can do all kinds of things, but on the most basic fundamental level, they see their job as excluding, oppressing, controlling, and maintaining hegemony for a particular population. And when they see signs or evidence that maybe this isn't happening the way it was originally designed, then they lose their minds completely and they charge the Capitol on January 6th. Earlier this month, we asked Vincent Blevins, author of The Jakarta Method, Washington's anti-communist crusade and the mass murder program that shaped our world. And then again, we asked the same question a week later when we spoke with Yannick Giovanni Marshall, who was on to discuss Minnesota's violent, racist lynch mob history. We asked both of them the same question, and that is broken promises are a big part of U.S. history, whether it's treaties with indigenous or the unfulfilled promise of the Cold War bringing democracy or the unfulfilled promises that Martin Luther King Jr. talked about in his 1962 speech or the unfulfilled promise of how great capitalism would be for Eastern Europe after the wall came down and the end of the Soviet Union, you got to wonder, why does anyone believe the U.S. promises anymore or that they were, will ever, were ever meant to be fulfilled? So 
How sustainable, Mark, how sustainable is a nation that promises something it never intends to fulfill? Is a state doomed to inevitable and unavoidable failure if it makes promises to its citizens from the very start that it never fulfills? Oh, yeah, it's doomed. I mean, it, it, the, 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 every empire collapses, and the U.S. is an empire. Uh, you know, it, it certainly oppresses beyond its borders but, and, and absolutely oppresses within. Uh, but, you know, as, as these promises continue to be broken, you know, as time goes on and consciousness continues to, to rise, uh, then inevitably, uh, you know, it will collapse, if not of its own weight, then because people will, will bring it down. But, you know, I think that, um, you know, one of the things that has been consistent, you know, from the outset is um, that the U.S. has built upon, uh, 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 it, you know, it's built everything on a foundation of lies. I mean, the U.S. was founded in blood, you know, the genocide of indigenous populations and their territorial theft. It was built on enslavement. You know, it's built on all of this stuff. You know, that's at the, you know, and then lies about all of it and says that we didn't do all of that. You know, uh, don't believe your eyes. Don't believe what you see. Don't believe, you know, plainly documented history. Don't believe any of it. We really are a country that's fair and just and democratic. Believe that. And people have wanted to believe it for a very long time. They really have. And I think that's why it has sustained itself for as long as it has. But, um, you know, it, it, the li lies never live on forever. Eventually, um, they come to the light of day. People see them and they act accordingly. And, you know, that's what scares conservatives about critical race theory. That's what upsets conservatives when people challenge things like the myths of American exceptionalism are these lies. So it just doesn't make sense to me that these lies can continue for much longer without people noticing them. Do you think that the political lines of demarcation right now are those who so desire to believe in those lies and those who are no longer willing to believe in those lies? I think there are some who cling to them uh, and will forever cling to them because they feel they have nothing else uh, to believe in. And, you know, not not believing in the lies uh, just leaves them completely and totally adrift and without direction and uh, totally hopeless. They will cling to them forever. Uh, there are others who see other possibilities, uh, who are able to imagine a different type of a world, a different type of a society, uh, who will face those those lies boldly and honestly and uh, will move on. And I think that that has been one of the, um, the issues that's been present in black communities historically. I mean, if you look at, um, you know, even the, the, you know, African people in the U.S. are very unique uh, in the sense that they have, they have been, their identity, their historical identity has been cut off. Uh, you, know, you know, even with First Nations people, you know, they know who they are. I mean, they know that they're Lakota, they know that they're Arapaho, they know that they're Iroquois, they know, they know who they are. African people, you know, who were enslaved and who've been in this, in this country for a long time, many of them have no clue as to who they are. So it has created a perpetual identity crisis for this group. It's the only group that changes its name every couple of years because they really just don't know. And 
you know, the, the clinging to the lies by this group has a lot to do with that, that loss of self, sense of self, and uh, knowledge of self, and identity, and historical connection. Because few people know that when enslaved Africans were first brought to America, they called themselves Africans. You know, uh, during the entire slave period, uh, they named their institutions African, the African Methodist Episcopal Church, the African Meeting House, the African Mutual Aid Society, they, African, African, African. They, na- they call themselves Africans all of the time. The only reason that they stopped calling themselves African was when there became a concern, especially in light of what was happening in the North with the American Colonization Society, where white workers were organizing, trying to uh, repatriate uh, free blacks back to Africa. They became concerned that if they call themselves African, then that would support that idea. And because they didn't know anything about Africa, they didn't know where they came from, and they didn't know where they were going, they wanted to discourage any uh, you know, sense that that's something that they wanted. And so they went from calling themselves African to calling themselves colored, and a whole series of names after that. Uh, and so you know, when you have a population like that that's been kidnapped, that has no sense of its historical identity, uh, you know, if you lie to that population and say, you know, we can make where you are a place where you will enjoy justice, where you will enjoy first-class citizenship, where you will receive your human and civil rights, if you lie to that population, then they want to believe that, and they will cling to that desperately. But I think we're reaching a point now where, you know, there is an ability to see beyond uh, the confines of this country, and there's more willingness uh, to abandon that type of desperation, uh, that type of desperate belief in what are clearly lies about what this country is and what it has to offer. I want to get back to the historical context you were offering earlier, and you were mentioning the 1857 case of Dred Scott. Now, that's 70 years after the Constitution is signed, a Constitution that promises liberties and freedom to everyone. The U.S. Supreme Court rules that if the so-called founders actually meant those documents to include those of African descent, nobody would have ever gone along with it. That's the argument of the Supreme Court. And reading the Constitution that way, that it is actually includes people of African descent, well, the the Supreme Court made that legally wrong. The universal nature of the founding documents would suggest, Mark, and I'm sure this isn't the case, but it would suggest that the founders or framers or whatever you want to call them were more supportive of the idea of equality than the Supreme Court of 70 years later would be. So did the U.S. become racist? Oh, no, it was racist from the outset. They, the, the framers knew exactly what they were doing. They knew exactly what they were doing. They were, they were creating this for white people. I mean, they, it, it, it was democracy for white people. I mean, they, they um, you know, had a historical memory of discrimination and oppression and religious persecution, you know, that uh, had occurred in, in England. Uh, and they wanted to avoid that for white people, but this was clearly, yeah, they, they, if, if, if it had not been, I mean, the Article One, Section Two makes it clear that they knew that enslaved Africans were very much a part of the the calculation. I mean, they, they, and there were there were you know debates and discussions about what do we do with these people? 
But they came, eventually they came, down, came to the conclusion that this, they're not part of this. I think that, I think that uh, the Supreme Court got it exactly right. This was never intended for, for black people. But the way that this story is told to us is that slavery was imposed on the founding fathers, the framers of the Constitution, that the only way they could have a United States would be to make this uh, bargain, uh, try to come to a consensus uh, with the South and give them slavery or else there wouldn't be a country, as if they were forced almost at gunpoint to accept slavery or there would not be a United States. How accurate is that story? Oh, well, well the, the framers themselves owned slaves. I mean, the first step, if you're opposed to slavery, is to free your own slaves. I mean, they, they had them. I mean, you know, so, so what, what's, what's that all about? I mean, you're so interested, if you recognize the humanity of African people, and you recognize the fundamental injustice of slavery, the first thing you do is you don't participate in it. This was not imposed on them. It was something that they went into willingly. Uh, they, they personally benefited from it. Uh, they had a good thing going, and they wanted to keep it going. So you were talking about how the United States cannot be reformed. Can reforms at least alleviate some of the suffering? How much can securing resources to help those who are the most vulnerable through reforms actually improve lives? Oh, yes. Reforms, um, you know, are, are good things. Don't, you know, don't uh, get me wrong. I, if, if, if there are things that can be done which will ease the pain, ease the suffering, of communities, then by all means do them. I mean, certainly the condition of, of, of uh, African people in particular in this country uh, has improved considerably, substantially, in major ways over the last number of, of decades. Uh, so, you know, clearly uh, there are benefits to reform, but that's not the ultimate question. The ultimate question is, you know, how does a people become liberated? You know, if they have been brought here, they've been kidnapped and brought here in chains and enslaved, how do you make that right? You know, how, how do you, you know, free them? I mean, there are things that have been irretrievably lost. You know, I mentioned earlier the, the loss of sense of self and historical uh, connection, identity. Those are important things. And, you know, they, in many ways, have uh, created obstacles, challenges that, you know, are difficult, if not impossible to overcome in terms of a people reaching their fullest potential, you know, aspiring to reach their full potential and actually realizing it. Uh, those things are just in many ways gone. And how do you, how do you, how do you get past that? You know, how does, how does an oppressed population within this country really exercise its right to self-determination, to really function in a way that they want to function, to live as they want to live, uh, without having to conform uh, with the, um, the, the will and uh, the limitations that are placed on them uh, by the, the dominant forces in this country. You know, you can't liberate yourself from all of that you know, using the structures which have been put in place by those who control you. They have designed those structures in such a way to make sure that they always control you. And that is the point that is, is you know, really what's at, is, is what's really at issue. 
We are speaking with civil rights attorney Mark P. Fancher, who wrote the Black Agenda Report article, The USA, Immoral, Illegal, Irredeemable, and Irrelevant to Global Africa's Liberation Agenda. Mark is a longtime contributor to Black Agenda Report, and he is the author of I Ain't Got Tired Yet, The Spiritual Battles of Enslaved African Christians and Their Descendants. You write that for many black political activists, from some of the most committed bourgeois Democratic Party stalwarts to some of the most revolutionary socialists, there is a widespread commitment to achieving political aspirations, if not within the current system, at least within North America. However... If what we face in this country goes beyond racial tensions and discriminations and is instead a state of war, then plans for freedom or liberation in the U.S. are grounded in self-delusion. How does recognition of that state of war help us better understand how the United States operates politically, socially, on, our, on a daily basis, on our daily lives? Yeah, I think, you know, if, if, if people, uh, you know, go from day to day understanding that their community is, you know, the target of a protracted, extended, intense, you know, process of genocide, you know, warfare, uh, then that alters considerably uh, their expectations about what, you know, the enemy of the community is going to do for them. I mean, if, if, if you know, you are functioning in a society where even under a democratic president, you know, and, and not only that, a, a president uh, who is African in origin, uh, you know, for, for eight years, and it's during that period when the most attention is drawn to the, uh, the killings that are being carried out against uh, members of your community by police. I mean, that, that, you know, that should tell you something. That, you know, if, if that's who's in charge of the country, presumably, and this is what happens, you know, under his watch, uh, then, you know, something is fundamentally wrong with something that, you know, what, what, what do you have to do? What position do you have to have in order to make a difference and to make changes? You know, if under that president's watch, you know, you have Africa attacked, specifically in Libya, you know, by the U.S., you know, a legitimate government overthrown, uh, the leader assassinated in the most horrific and brutal way, and the entire country thrown into chaos, uh, you know, presumably for purposes of getting access to Libyan oil fields and undermining attempts that were being made by Gaddafi uh, to, institutional, to implement and institutionalize a pan-African currency, which would have had a huge impact on Western economies, you know, what, what, what about that? What about the fact that under, you know, a black democratic president, uh, you had unprecedented use of drones, you know, attacking the African continent? Um, you know, what, what about that? I mean, so we have to understand that it, it's, it goes beyond individuals. This isn't just a point at uh, President Obama, because I really believe that uh, if, if, if I were in that position, the same things would happen because it, it goes beyond uh, what the individual does. You know, this is the way that the system is constructed. This is the way the country is constructed. These are the things that it does to preserve itself. And, um, you know, it is a war that has to be waged against certain populations. I mean, I, I frequently refer to um, First Nations peoples, and, and, and to African people as expendable populations. 
you know, uh, the, the, the usefulness of First Nations people was, you know, to the, the U.S. entity was limited to begin with. And so warfare against them began in earnest uh, right away. With respect to enslaved Africans, there was some value in those black bodies for, you know, some period of time because of the, uh, the, the slave institution. But after that ended, there was no value in that community. They became an expendable population. They really would have loved to have just put everybody on a boat and sent them away, but they couldn't get away with doing that. I mean, I think that right now they would just love to be able to just, you know, have unleashed police and the military uh, to go in and just wipe everybody out, but they can't get away with doing that. But they do other things. You know, they lock, you know, thousands and thousands of them up in prisons. Uh, whatever, who, whoever they can get away with shooting down in the street, they do that. Uh, you know, they, they make sure that the schools are such that they're not ever, you know, able to uh, fulfill their fullest aspirations. They will go into a community as such as in Flint, Michigan, uh, and they'll poison the water. Uh, they'll, you know, shut off the water in Detroit uh, to run people out of cities that they want to gentrify. You know, they'll foreclose on homes. You know, they'll do all kinds of things in order to just get this population out of the way uh, because they really are a nuisance. Uh, so understanding America from that perspective helps people to uh, adjust their expectations and their, their political objectives. One of the things you were just mentioning was Gaddafi's attempt at a pan-African currency. And I hate to go back to this cliche over and over again because we've been talking about it on the show recently. But in Gil Scott Heron's song, The Revolution Will Not Be Televised, I mean, this seems like a revolution that was not televised. To what degree can Americans make, can people here in the United States make informed opinions about things like going to war against Libya when we're not told about... Qaddafi's attempted a pan-African currency. To what extent are all of the uprisings that challenge U.S. power you know, deleted from our media, self-censored from our media, so we just cannot make educated and informed decisions about it? Are we not as complicit in this as we might think we are? We, we are, but, um, you know, but we, we've been trained to be that way. Um, you know, we've been trained to accept as, um, you know, the truth or the news, uh, those things which are coming from what have been presented to us as credible, objective uh, sources. You know, one of the organizations I uh, work with is the All African People's Revolutionary Party, and um, our, our, you know, specific uh, method of operation is to always go to original sources, uh, never rely on the mass media for information. So if something is being, uh, you know, is happening in Libya, uh, we don't try and read about that in the New York Times. You know, go to the Libyan government, find out what do they have to say about it. You know, there's an embassy, you know, or there's a mission for every country, every movement. Go to them, find out what is it that you have to say about this. You know, go to the original sources and get the information straight. And I think for people who are concerned, it's a good way of, uh, you know, understanding what's really happening in the world, you know, don't let it get filtered and censored and distorted uh, through uh, media, you know, just go to the original sources and find out what, what the different players have to say about what's happening in the world. Uh, you'll make much better uh, decisions about, um, you know, how you feel 
about particular things that are happening. You write, although collectively America's Africans have been in denial and about dismal prospects for an interracial alliance, there have been individuals who have been quite clear on this question. To make your point, you then quote W.E.B. Du Bois in 1934 at the time of his public resignation from the NAACP in 1934 again, saying that colored people of America are coming to face the fact quite calmly that most white Americans do not like them and are planning neither for their survival nor for their definite future if it involves free, self-assertive modern manhood. This does not mean all Americans, a saving few, are worried about the Negro problem, a still larger group are not ill-disposed, but they fear prevailing public opinion. The great mass of Americans are, however, merely representatives of average humanity. They muddle along with their own affairs and scarcely can be expected to take seriously the affairs of strangers or people whom they partly fear and partly despise. So, Mark, is that normal? Is that what we are being told we need to go back to as soon as possible? Is normal going about our daily business and not being concerned about how or how you or your business affects others are we supposed to go back to the normal of our actions not having consequences is that the normal they want us to return to well i think the the those in power would love that and and you know du bois was a brilliant man i mean he was able to see quite clearly what uh what was happening with respect to the white population in this country and in in, in some ways uh, white workers are, are, you know, one of the most tragic stories in, in U.S. history. Because, you know, going back to what I was talking about earlier, when the country was first being established, it was established for the purpose not of all white people, notwithstanding the rhetoric. It was established for a small white elite, you know, a small group of people that had property and wealth. Uh, and if you want to see how this played out most graphically, you know, look at the, the South during the, um, the, the, the slave era. You know, plantation owners represented a tiny, tiny fraction of the white population uh, in the South. Uh, they, you know, and the reason is that it costs so much money uh, to, to, to buy uh, human beings. You know, in today's money to buy one enslaved African, it could cost you as much as twenty or $30,000, which meant that if you wanted to staff uh, an agri- agricultural force for your plantation, you had to have lots and lots of money. And very, very few families had that much money. The vast majority of white people in the South were desperately, desperately poor. Uh, their financial, their economic circumstances were only slightly better than those of enslaved Africans. You know, these were people who, you know, particularly in the Carolinas, uh, you know, where there were textile mills, that's where they worked. And when they would come out at the end of their shifts, they, they were covered uh, in, in cotton fibers. And so, you know, the, the elite white people would call these people lint heads. Uh, sometimes they would call them white trash. Uh, they, would, they would call them all kinds of things. Uh, they were, you know, dismissed as being an inferior group of people. Um, but there was a recognition of the fact that if they treated this, these white workers too badly, uh, that they might wake up and they might see that there was, uh, you know, a shared, uh, um, you know, interest that they had with enslaved Africans. And if those groups got together, then the elite plantation owners were finished. And so this, this notion 
of white nationalism, you know, white supremacy, you know, uh, was something that was uh, deliberately and consciously uh, used as a way of driving a wedge between black and white workers uh, during that period. And so that while white workers really, you know, they might have lived in dirt floor shacks and, you know, had nothing to eat most of the time and they were getting pennies a day for what they were, were, were uh, you know, working for, uh, they at least implicitly were told that unlike the enslaved Africans, you have an opportunity for upward mobility. Uh, that you can elevate yourself out of your condition. You have that opportunity, and black people don't. Uh, when we see you on the street, we will refer to you as Mr. Smith, Mr. Jones, Mr. Lawrence. But when we see enslaved Africans, uh, we will refer to them as boy or the N-word or something worse. Uh, so these white workers, you know, they didn't have much, but they did recognize that they were you know, receiving some measure of white privilege, you know, as minimal as it might be, with the promise that maybe their kids and their grandkids would have better lives than they're having. And they clung to this very jealously, uh, and they embraced it enthusiastically. And what they became, uh, they became the guardians of this, this system, which was set up to protect white rich people. And so these were the, the people who became overseers on the plantations, you know, they would go onto the plantations and they would ride herd over the uh, enslaved Africans and, you know, crack their whips over their backs when they weren't working hard enough. They cracked the whips so much that enslaved Africans came to call them crackers. Uh, you know, these were the people who were recruited, conscripted into the U.S. military, and they rode off as part of uh, cavalries uh, to fight wars against, you know, indigenous peoples and in the First Nations. These were the people who ultimately populated police forces in, in cities. And they carried with them uh, this orientation toward race, which they had uh, been given about white nationalism and the fact that they were protecting and defending a white country that was set aside for them. And so, yes, when Du Bois makes the observation that most white people, you know, don't care for black people, he was absolutely right. And those that dislike, you know, evolves and escalates into hatred during periods when people of color, most particularly black people, are perceived to be uh, rising up out of uh, the subordinate status that uh, they supposedly should occupy. So during the period of Reconstruction, when enslaved African people came out of slavery and very quickly uh, achieved a high level of political participation. They took over the South Carolina legislature. There were black people in the U.S. House of Representatives, in the U.S. Senate. There was a black lieutenant governor. Um, you know, when they began to uh, leverage the skills that they picked up on the plantation, you know, when they were blacksmiths or builders or carpenters, uh, when they began to turn those things into profitable enterprises and they became entrepreneurs, uh, there was intense jealousy, intense resent resentment by white poor people, you know, toward these people who seemed to be raising themselves up very quickly out of a, out of a condition of, you know, an, an enslaved uh, condition. Uh, and so they struck back by establishing the Ku Klux Klan, 
embarking on a protracted process of lynching and night riding and terrorism uh, in order to, in their words, redeem the South. And we see the same thing happen historically. Anytime black people are perceived to be making advances, anytime in these times when people of color are perceived to be threatening the status of white workers, uh, then there is this reaction. And so January 6th is very much the latest uh, manifestation of that, uh, where there is intense fear in white working communities about their losing their grip on the position and the status that they've had. There are far too many brown people coming across the borders now, and in their minds and in their imagination, displacing them. Uh, there are far too many black people ascending to positions of authority and power, uh, you know, and it threatens them. And so they look with favor on, you know, members of their community and police departments who do what they can to shoot down these people. You know, uh, that, that's something that they might never express publicly, but they really, they appreciate that. Um, in fact, here in Michigan, where I live, there was a recent incident where a police, an auxiliary police officer, after the Chauvin verdict, tweeted, you know, F George Floyd, uh, that verdict was BS, let's go to an appeal. All right. And so that's that's I don't think that's an isolated uh, viewpoint or perspective that's held by many white workers. And the tragedy of it is that uh, their their condition would have been improved so much if they had been clear in their thinking and they had joined forces with other oppressed communities to overthrow the true source of their pain. And they've never been able to see that. And I have serious doubts that they ever will. I'm with Du Bois on that. Yeah, I uh, was born and raised in Michigan, born in Detroit, raised in uh, East Detroit. And, uh, at, you know, whenever you hear those kind of comments from police in Michigan who are saying that they need to do a repeal of the Chauvin uh, verdict, it just it's just pure Michigan. Right, Mark? Oh, yes. <laughs> <laughs> it's frightening. Yes, it is. Uh, just a couple more questions for you. We've been speaking with civil rights attorney Mark P. Fancher, who wrote the Black Agenda Report article, The USA Immoral, Illegal, Irredeemable, and Irrelevant to Global Africa's Liberation Struggle. Uh, so uh, back in November, you also posted the column, Global Africa's Mission, Outthink and Outmaneuver Stupid, Violent Imperialists. So you conclude that column by writing, because U.S. presidents have stubbornly relied most heavily upon the military option, they have proven themselves to be not only violent imperialists, but stupid violent imperialists as well. It, if instead of drone attacks and death, the U.S. built highways, high-speed rail systems, and hospitals, Africans would be even more confused about the true aims of the smiling imperialists bearing gifts and would likely do more to facilitate their, ex their own exploitation. So to you, what explains the U.S. employing stupid violent imperialism in Africa instead of smart, more peaceful, and potentially even more exploitative imperialism in Africa? Why do the dumb one when you can do the smart one and get better results? Well, you know, because they're stupid and violent. I mean, I've got, I'm working on a piece now that looks at what I call white boy culture. And, you know, whether you find it in, on football teams, you find it on police forces, you find it in the military, you find it in fraternity houses, where it's a, it's a you know, an insular culture that's fueled by too much testosterone, uh, too much macho, and, and very often too much beer. And it doesn't allow for clear thinking 
or it, 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 it creates a level of arrogance uh, that um, leads them to believe that they can never be wrong about anything that they do. And the idea of doing something different, you know, such as trying to assist, uh, you know, countries, you know, in order to make friends with them, uh, it seems too soft. You know, it doesn't seem macho enough. Uh, and it and it gets you know it's it it will it's the it will ultimately lead to their undoing. Uh, so I, I would like to seize on that as a vulnerability and attack it for everything that it's worth. So I I hope that they continue to remain stupid, and um, you know the the stupider they are, uh, the faster that we will achieve uh, liberation and justice. One last question for you, Mark. We've been speaking with civil rights attorney Mark P. Fancher, who is the author of I Ain't Got Tired Yet, The Spiritual Battles of Enslaved African Christians and Their Descendants. You write about the ongoing occupation here in the United States of the continent. Uh, And our final question for each and every one of our guests, Mark, I should warn you, is the question from hell. The question we hate to ask, you might hate to answer. Our audience is going to hate your response. Is there any solution to the problems of settler colonialism, the invasion, the occupation, the ongoing occupation, and structural racism against indigenous peoples? Is there any way to overcome all of those problems other than just leaving? Oh yeah, it's it, it's 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 just basic humanity. I mean, you know, we 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 all that we have to do in order to resolve this, and people don't want to do it, but it's the simple solution. This territory was stolen from people who were the targets of genocide, and the way that you fix that is you give it back to them. Just give it back. You know, the country just needs to be returned to the people who it was stolen from. You steal anything. You know, you go to any court, the court's going to order that the person make restitution. Whatever it is that they stole, give it back. And that's what we need to do. And that doesn't necessarily mean that the end result of that is that, uh, you know, those of us who are not indigenous to this hemisphere will have to pack up and leave. Uh, I don't know what it would be, but it does mean going back to, to the indigenous populations and saying, this is yours to do with what you want to do. What do you want us to do? Is it okay if we stay? If we stay, under what conditions and under what terms? How can we build a society which is one which is consistent with your culture and your beliefs and your aims and your aspirations and your wishes? How can we live together as human beings uh, in this space in a way that ensures justice to the people who were here first? That's not a hard thing to do conceptually. The only thing that complicates it are the, um, the weaknesses and the frailties of, of, of character uh, that unfortunately too many of us have. And, and, uh, and let me say this, you know, I don't ever stress about these things because, you know, I am a spiritual man. I, 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 you know, I think that all of these things are in God's hands. And, um, you know, the only thing that we have to do is to, to follow the directions that, uh, that he's given us. And uh, we do that, everything is going to work out fine. And it's always just as simple as be as you know for us to just be the best human beings that we can be. We know what it. We know what morality is. We know what justice is. We know what it takes in order to treat people well, even when it inconvenience. It may inconvenience us. 
it may take, you know, result in us losing certain privileges and things that we enjoy now, but that's just what we have to do in order to create a human family uh, that shares this planet in a way that ensures that everybody has what they need, in a way that everybody has justice, in a way that everybody enjoys self-determination. Mark, I cannot thank you enough for being on our show today. Thank you so much. This is a fantastic article, and people should go to Black Agenda Report and click on your name because then they can see all of your past writing over at Black Agenda Report. Thank you so much for being on our show. We really appreciate it. No, it has been entirely my pleasure. Thank you for having me. All right, take care, and enjoy the rest of your week in Michigan. Oh, you too. (laughs) All right, bye. I'm not in Michigan. Live from late capitalism where we know the price of everything But the value of nothing This is hell And if you like what you just heard Please show your support By going to thisishell.com and clicking on support Where you can find all of our merchandise Our camping mug, our winter cap, our trucker's hat uh, T-shirts, tote bags, flash drive uh, History of the 21st century so far here on This Is Hell. And there's also a place where you can subscribe to our Friday Patreon podcast, which features a new monologue from me and a classic interview unavailable anywhere else online at patreon.com slash thisishell. So go to thisishell.com, click on support, see all of the different ways you can support This Is Hell. Please, uh, Jess, please remind us what is this week's question from hell. And tell us how our listeners are responding so far. This week's question from hell is, what secret society are you trying to join? Mike M. says, the Build-A-Burger group. <laughs> Jesus. <laughs> good Lord. Yeah, that's a good one. Um, Brandon S., uh, the group of people who seem to know what they're doing with their life. Oh, okay. Warren L., anyone with a logo that will cover up my unfortunate tattoo, which says... Uh, Cat crap in Chinese letters. <laughs> wow. Adam A. I'm pretty sure the cool kids from my old high school are still part of the same clique. This time for sure. <laughs> what secret society are you trying to join? Garrett S. The Cool Kids Club. Michael D. It's a secret. And Nick E. The He Man Woman Lovers Club. <laughs> <laughs> It's time for, and you can leave your answer to this week's question mail at our Facebook page, facebook.com slash thisishellradio. Direct message it to us via Twitter at thisishellradio or email it to me at chuck at thisishell.com. But remember, we have to have your answer by the end of Thursday's show. It's time for nasty, gnarly, nauseous, naughty, nerdy, icky, drippy, sticky, goopy, gloppy, globby, gory this week in rotten history. And no trigger warning is necessary this week. Last week's rotten history was brutal. On the morning of May 26th, 1937, 84 years ago this Wednesday, some 60 members of the United Auto Workers Union, led by local 174 President Walter Ruther, arrived at the Ford Motor Company's River Rouge plant in Dearborn, Michigan, near Detroit, to meet workers as they emerged at shift change. Accompanied by reporters, photojournalists, and religious clergy, the UAW men and women assembled on a pedestrian overpass near the factory gate, waiting to pass out leaflets, urging the workers to unite and strike against Ford for better pay and conditions, much as other Detroit-area auto workers had already done with success at General Motors and Chrysler. In other words, they were exercising their freedom of speech and were attempting to get workers to engage in a democratic process with their employers. As Ruther and other leaders of the group posed for photographs, they were approached by men from Ford's private security force, 
who demanded that they vacate the overpass, which was actually public property, not private. So the four dicks were overstepping their authority and acting as if they had rights over public spaces. The union leaders refused to move, so the Ford goons began beating on them. Smashing them to the pavement, knocking them down, kicking them two flights of kicking them down two flights of cement stairs and throwing one man off the overpass, breaking his back. The Ford thugs also physically attacked other union members nearby, including both men and women. Meanwhile, the reporters took notes and photographs or photographers snapped away until the thugs came after them too. When they approached James Kilpatrick of the Detroit News, demanding that he surrender his camera film, Kilpatrick handed them some unexposed photo plates and ran. Later, the Ford security people claimed innocence and accused the UAW members of provoking the violence, but their lie was exposed when Kilpatrick's incriminating photos were published, bringing their brutal tactics to national attention. I can only assume that at this point, the police showed up at the River Rouge factory and arrested all of the violent agitators that Ford had sent out to beat up peaceful organizers. Really? That didn't happen? Ford actually got away with it and UAW members proudly drive Fords today? That's weird. Go figure. You know, uh, just as a side story from that, uh, my dad was offered a job of being one of those people to beat up UAW members. He was in a gang. Guy pulled up. He had a truck full of baseball bats, a trunk full of baseball bats, and he said, "Hey, fellas, get in the uh, car. We're gonna go drive over to River Rouge. You get out these baseball bats, and we'll kick some ass. We'll give you some money." My dad's gang decided not to partake in that problem, as many of their neighbors worked at Ford. In rotten history, on the morning of May 27th, 1983, 38 years ago this Thursday, Webb's Bait Farm in Benton, Tennessee, locally known for selling worms and fishing gear, was the site of a tremendous blast, heard as far as 20 miles away with a mushroom cloud hundreds of feet high. Any guesses as to what exploded? Was it the fishing gear or the worms? a second to guess. The first explosion broke windows and tore sheetrock off houses nearby and was followed by a series of smaller explosions that sounded like gunfire. Could the worms be armed, maybe? I don't know what the gun laws are in Tennessee, but I think that anybody can get a gun, even worms. When the smoke finally cleared, assorted human body parts of various sizes were found around the neighborhood, not only on the ground, but on rooftops and windows, which is gross. The explosion killed 11 people and revealed an illicit business, hitherto unknown to most people who live nearby. Webb's innocent-looking bait farm was the front for an illegal fireworks factory where more than a dozen employees were paid around $5 an hour in cash to mix chemicals by hand and assemble powerful M80 and M100 fireworks. Dan Webb, owner of the operation, was arrested two days later after delivering 86 thousand M80 fireworks to a client in the Chicago suburb of Lansing, Illinois. And if you have ever been to Lansing, Illinois, every part of that makes complete sense. Webb would do 10 years in prison for crimes, including involuntary manslaughter. Some of his business associates were also arrested and locked up. It became obvious that Webb's employees at the bait farm had received no proper safety training. Items recovered in the wreckage included more than two tons of undetonated explosives, a cigarette lighter, 
three packs of smokes, and various electrical appliances that could easily have thrown sparks. Meanwhile, as news media descended on the site, neighbors expressed amazement. One man, who had long noticed the busy comings and goings around the farm, said he had often wondered how it could employ so many people just raising worms for fishing bait. Yeah, that is something to wonder about. That's that's very curious. You know, that's curious. Like, why do my neighbors who smoke pot on their back porch every morning, beginning around 5 a.m., stand in front of our house on the same day of the week at the same time every week, as if they are waiting for something? And then a car pulls up. They talk to the person in the car. The conversation ends. The car drives off, and so they go back into their home. I mean, I'm really wondering. What are they up to? That's Rotten History, and this is Hell Jess, who is on tomorrow's Tuesday show, beginning at 10 a.m. Chicago time, right here at thisishell.com. On Tuesday, we're talking to Craig Robertson on his book, The Filing Cabinet, A Vertical History of Information. That sounds exciting. (laughs) What about Wednesday's show? Um, On Wednesday, we're speaking with Spencer Hedworth on his book, Policing Welfare, Punitive adversarialism and public assistance. So don't worry, we're not going to get off this policing beat for long. And the one, what about Thursday's show? Thursday, um, we have Sarah Imud on her Jadalia article, Shake Jarrah, The Question Before Us. And Jeff Dorchin will be delivering a moment of truth. I'm your bitter, blind, broke, gap tooth radio show podcast live streaming host, Chuck Mertz. Producing today's show is Jess Lipka. Thanks to Mark Francher, today's guest. Also, thanks to Jess for producing, Alex Jerry for booking today's guest, and all of this week's guests. Thanks to Ronaldo Magaldi for Rotten History. And this week's Hangover Cure is a desperate attempt at attention by a sad, privileged person and masturbation. We told you so. This is hell. My demon is on my butt. <laughs> my demon talks to me in profanity like a seller. And my demon tries to knock me down. And my demon tries to put me on a hell ride. Thank you for listening to This Is Hell. For more interview hell and to support the show, visit thisishell.com. <laughs>